I think if you can do it, you can dream it. Like if you put one foot in front of the other, then the, the, where does confidence come from? Confidence comes from competence. Once you start, once you start displaying to yourself that you have competence in something, you can have the, like the confidence to dream these bigger dreams. Like think about when you're, when you're hiking, like if you're at the bottom of the mountain range and you look at the top and you go, I'm going to climb to the top of the mountain. Right. But what happens when you get to the top of the mountain and you see the view, what do you see? You see 10 other mountain ranges that are higher that you didn't see from the bottom. So if you were like, if I can dream it, I can do it. I can dream. I can get to the top of the mountain. Not only is it impossible, but you actually set your goals too low. Times are related is your currency. What's up? Welcome back to the Eat Green, Make Green podcast. If it is your first time checking out the show, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast. Um, This is Pat McCauley, as always. This is the second episode of 2020, um, and it is another kick-ass one. Uh, This week's guest is Laura Gassner-Odding. Laura is an entrepreneur, um, she, uh, ran a very successful business for over 15 years, which she, which she recently sold, um, and then, uh, has become a very sought after keynote speaker, uh, best-selling author. Uh, she just released, uh, her new book called Limitless. I believe it's her third book. Um, it's called Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. I have read it. Um, it's it's very good, um, and uh, yeah, I was uh, we just connected about a month ago on social media. I started following her content. She's local to Boston, although she uh, is on the road a ton. Um, and I just reached out because I love the content she puts out and the positivity, um, and just really encouraging people to um, you know find and follow their own path. Um, so we talk about her upbringing uh, in Miami, uh, her journey to law school, then into politics. Uh, she worked for Bill Clinton's presidential campaign. Uh, so we talk about what she learned from Bill Clinton, um, how she then wound up in the nonprofit world, and then at 29, uh, why she decided to start her own executive search business. Um, and that was the business that, business that she ended up running for uh, 15 years or so, and then selling, and then why she decided to uh, then make the jump into speaking and writing books, um, and then sort of the final quarter, uh, we jump all into uh, all into Limitless, um, which again I I think is super powerful and uh, really all about um, living in alignment with who you are and what your calling is, um, and and to me. Uh, that is the baseline for for happiness, is living in alignment with who you are. Um, so super powerful message, uh, very powerful, energetic uh, person. Uh, again, Laura is just a force, and, and you'll hear her energy. Um, there's so many amazing um, gems of wisdom in this episode, and I hope you guys enjoy uh, definitely uh, check out the book. I'll leave links in the show notes. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's everywhere books are sold. Um, I hope you guys enjoy. This is a very, 
entrepreneur heavy ones. So if you're used to, um, you know, a lot of the health focused ones, uh, we didn't get a ton into, um, the health side of things. So, uh, but anyway, unbelievable episode. Um, yeah. So without further ado, the one and only Laura Gassner Odding. So I got Laura in the house. Thank you very much for being here. We're literally or in the or house. Or for, yes, <laughs> I'm in your house. Thank you for being here. <laughs> we're in uh, Newton for those that are local to Boston. Um, you have a beautiful spot here. And thank, and you. thank you for hosting. Um, yeah, and I was just a few weeks ago, or maybe maybe a little longer, um, somebody reposted something from you. Um, I clicked on it, started following you, saw the book. Um, then I saw something about you taking a meeting, like either walking or maybe even the Harvard Stadium. The Harvard Stadium, yes. Something and I was like, yes, like because I do that type of stuff. And yes. people are like, you know, I don't want to meet you in the state park. It's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, then, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm going for a run so we can do the meeting now or, or whatever. But I totally relate to that. And I love like, uh, kind of getting people, I feel like your, uh, connection in, in meeting is so much better in those scenarios too, than meeting for, a coffee or a beer or something. Yeah. There's actually, there's actually science that shows that when you move your body during a meeting, you come up with more creative results. So I tell people that's the reason, but the truth is I'm really busy. I travel all the time. And if somebody Mm -hmm. wants to spend time with me, I, I can't, it's, it, I can afford the sandwich that I eat on my own more than I, you know, can't afford the time, like to spend an hour with somebody to have them, you know, quote unquote, pick my brain about things that Mm -hmm. frankly, most of the time they could probably find on the internet. I, I, for me, it it does several things. It gets rid of the tire kickers, the Mm -hmm. ones who ask everybody for advice who don't necessarily take your advice seriously. And it gets the people that are, that really need me specifically me. Um, it also shows me that somebody's going to be ready to act on my advice. If you're willing to meet me at five 30 in the morning at the Harvard stadium, I know you actually really care. You really, this is a problem that's causing you pain and you want to solve it. And it allows me to be efficient and get things done and not just get fat by like having another $7.95 sandwich, which, you know, I mean, I have a pretty good hourly rate. It's more than (laughs) $7.95, but I'll meet anybody anytime if they want to meet me to do the Harvard Stadium or go for a run or, you know, bang out a a, a rowing workout on the ERG or something. That's great. So, Mm. you know, for people that are trying to figure out how do you get on the schedule of somebody that seems busier than you, figure out what they're doing and just meet them there. So these are my meet and eats. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. Yeah. So I, I saw that, um, I shot you a DM and then I started following your stuff since. And, um, again, thank you for doing this. I'm excited to get the the full story. Yeah, let's go. So I'd love to just go back a little ways and sort of paint the the picture of sort of your journey. I know you're originally from Miami, right? I am originally from Miami. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, walk us through kind of life growing up a little bit and sort of what the, what the path was when you were younger. Oh, yeah. Well, I grew up in Miami in the eighties. So if you ever saw Scarface, that was my childhood, right? I, 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 when I was first dating my husband, they, they brought the movie back out on the big screen and I was like, Uh you need to come see this. This is a documentary. (laughs) This is not a fictional piece. Um, so I grew up in a very interesting time in Miami where, um, it felt very much like you made your own path, you made your own success. So people were coming from literally all over the world, but you know, mostly South yeah, America, legal Cuba, or illegal, legal or illegal. I mean, and you know, and here's the thing, like if you're going to put yourself and your family, like your loved ones on an inner tube and travel 90 miles from Cuba in shark infested waters, you 
are probably escaping something pretty bad and you want to be in this country, right? You want to be here. And, and, and the people who came were such entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. again, whether they were doing legal work or illegal work. Um, and so I grew up with, with, there was, there's like a sense of lawlessness almost in Miami in the eighties where it was like, you know, it was just how, how much could you hustle? How hard could you work? What could you get away with? There was like, people were sort of just on the edge of everything being legit. You know, my sister and I joke around that it's like hashtag Miami factor. I flew in for an event a couple of weeks ago and I called an Uber when I landed. And when the Uber got to the, got to the, the, the door at the airport, the woman behind the, uh, behind the driver's wheel said, well, this is my friend's car. I'm not actually the driver, but he's lending it to me for the night. And I would never have gotten it in any other city, but in Miami, it was like eh, hashtag Miami factor. Like that seemed that, that checks out. Seems like it makes sense. So, you know, the school, the high school I went to was, was, was super diverse. It was one third Latino, one third African-American, one third white. And among the Latinas, you had Cubans and Venezuelans and Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. And of the African-Americans, you had people that had been in the country for, for years. You had people that had, you know, just come over. And with, with the Caucasians, there were wealthy families. There were poor families. I mean, it was just, you had a little bit of everything. So it was, it was just all one big soup. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think I grew up with this sense that you are what you make yourself to be, regardless of where you came from, regardless of your background, that your past, there are bits of your past in your future, right? There are bits of your past that inform who you can become, but it's really, you're the one who's got the pencil in your hand and you get to write your story. Mm-hmm. I love that. And what type of kid were you, were you like active sports kid? Oh or? no, no, no. I actually, so I'll be 49 in a couple of weeks. And I, I ran my first mile of my entire life 10 years ago when I was 39. Like wow. I was the kid who had like, I had the little journal that uh-huh. I documented every single excuse that I gave my PE teacher about why I couldn't do PE that day. Like, I think I probably told her I had my period every <laughs> single day for all of sixth, seventh, eighth and ninth grade. Like I was just, I was just like clearly impossible, but I just, I didn't, I, I, I'm not naturally athletic. I was not, I, I was a rule follower as a kid very much. Mm-hmm. And I really liked the gold stars. Like I wanted to do the things I could do well and I could not sports well. I was very bad at the sportsing. So I just mm. didn't do it. I did the yearbook and I did debate and I did student council, but I didn't do the sportsing. That was not my place. <laughs> no. So post high school, you're then... Stay in Miami or? No, so then I went to University of Texas. Okay, UT. UT, UT Austin. And I think I had a very good time. I don't remember much of it. So (laughs) that tells me I probably had a very good time. Uh, I skipped kindergarten when I was little. I guess I could stack blocks and share. So my parents pushed me ahead. So I graduated from high school a year early. Uh, I had a lot of AP credits. So I graduated from college six months early. And I went to law school. And I, I had always thought that I was going to be, I was going to be the first U.S. senator, women, female U.S. senator from the great state of Florida. Like that was my plan. I was going to like change the world. I was going to solve the problems from from like in fourth grade. I had a teacher who said, "You're really argumentative. You should be a lawyer." And I went, "You're wrong," because you know I was argumentative. (laughs) (laughs) But then I created a path that got me on the road to law school, because I thought, "All right, well, that's that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to solve all the problems." And I, I got to law school and I was 20 years old and I looked around and was like, I've made a huge mistake. I don't belong here. I don't want to be here. I don't, I have no interest in any of this. 
So uh, I did the thing that most people do when they've made a huge mistake in their life. I started dating a guy who was terrible for me. And, <laughs> and I joke around that this guy had a really good taste in precisely two things. The first, obviously, being girlfriends, right? Uh, and the second was unknown uh, presidential candidates from small southern states. So uh, I used to ride my bike to campus, and this guy, uh, it was raining one day, and this guy said, well, I'll put your bike in the back of my car, I'll drive you home, but first I want to stop at this guy's office, he's, he's running for president. And this is like back before the internet, so if you wanted to learn about somebody who's running for office, you'd have to go to their local strip mall, mm-hmm. little campaign outpost, and you'd have to get, you know, paper and brochures and talk about the, where they stood on issues. So he takes my bike and he puts it in the back of his IROC Z, right? Tells you what you need to know about this guy. And he drives me to this little campaign office. And in, the, and, and in the campaign office that's about the size of this dining room, in the corner of the room was this little black and white TV. And it was then Governor Bill Clinton. And he, you know, brown hair and, and young. And he's giving this impassioned speech about how there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America. And he offered as a solution a, a, a policy proposal, which was community service in exchange for college tuition. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, yes, that needs to happen. That needs to happen right now. And in that moment, I went from thinking, how can I help? How can I be the solution? How can I be the U.S. senator who you know, has the spotlight to how do we get him in office? What needs to happen in order to make that thing a reality? Mm. So I dropped out of law school, dumped the boyfriend, mm. um, in reverse order, <laughs> dumped the boyfriend, dropped out of law school. Um, and I joined his campaign as a volunteer. And this is the biggest yada, yada, yada in the history of yada, yada, yada. But I ended up in the White House that then created AmeriCorps. Wow. So that was my and that first... that was all behind Bill Clinton. It's all behind Bill Clinton. So, yeah. so uh, I, that was my first real grown-up job. I mean, I had yeah. jobs growing up where I was like changing bedpans in hospital rooms. I had, mm. you know, literally shitty jobs. But <laughs> that was my first like real grown-up adult on your resume job was yeah. presidential appointee in Bill Clinton's White House. Is there, build is there anything you learned from being in his realm that, that you'd want to share? Oh God. Uh, yeah. I, I, so I never believed that you were born with charisma. Mm. I just, I never believed it. I, I just, but he has it right. Like there is, there is, and obviously my, my experience and my memory, uh, and my feelings about that time are fraught now, like in the me too era and thinking back on, you know, being young and not really understanding power dynamics, um, and no, I wasn't friends with Monica. <laughs> I, did, I didn't know her. I wasn't going to ask. I, I mean, she was, go we were the same age, but she was an intern and yeah. I was on staff and, you know, we thought we were, you know, you know, hot stuff. So, um, <laughs> but I get that question a lot. Um, <laughs> what, what, you know, he had, and still does, you know, I, I, I was very active in, in Hillary's campaign. And so I, I saw him a lot. And he is, he's a vegan now, right? And he's mm-hmm. like you know, wizened and he's like, he's like a, he's, he's like a walnut. <laughs> he's just like this like skinny, um, skinny old man and, you know, shakes and, but when he looks at you, 
this blue eyes and the intensity and the fire that's in them. And he just, you were like the only person on the planet. Mm. And he's the kind of person that he'll, he'll, he'll work, a, um, a handshake, the rope line, he'll, he'll shake everyone's hand. And he looks at you and he says, he, he, he says, you know, Pat, it is so good to see you. How is mm. your mother? Tell me about the where. And, 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 and then he goes on to the next person. You can still feel him looking at you, even though he's gone. It's like the intensity that's there. Yeah. And so while I don't have that kind of charisma, I wasn't born with the ability to change the gravitational force of a room just by walking mm. into it. I learned how to see people, how to really look at people and how to really listen to them in a way where you could hear what they were saying, but also see what they weren't saying so that you could drive the conversation deeper immediately. Mm. So I learned from him that. Um, he also is, is a voracious learner. So he's somebody, he was always curious. He was always asking questions. He never just listened to what he heard around him and then took it for, you know, for, for, you know, as fiat. He always, he was continuously learning, continuously building his brain. I've never seen anybody onboard as much information as him. So just that, the, the idea that, you know, you, he's president of the United States and he's still learning and getting better and growing. And so I think those two things were things that I learned at a pretty early age to, to value and to make sure that I practiced every day. Mm, I love that. I love that. And then do you jump right into your entrepreneurial career after that? No. So, um, so I spent four years working there, helping build AmeriCorps. And at the end of four years, he was obviously he's back on the campaign trail, I guess three years, he's back on the campaign trail. And I went to my mentor and boss, a man by the name of Eli Siegel, Eli ran the 92 campaign and he could have had, he could have been the ambassador to France. He could have had any cushy job he wanted, mm. but he wanted to build AmeriCorps. So he came in, uh, he became my very first boss. I actually dedicated my first book to him because he was a, a mentor and a father figure to me. Uh, and so I went into his office one day and I was like, all right, Eli, I'm, I, I think I need to resign. I'm, I want to go back on the campaign trail because that's what I thought I wanted to do. I wanted to do politics, and I'd gotten a master's degree in political management in the, in the meantime. Um, so I'm a professional spin doctor, basically. Uh, and, and he said, in a way that only a father figure and a mentor can say, well, Laura, you're, you're kind of too old to get back on a campaign bus and sleep on a high school gymnasium floor and eat cold yeah. pizza, but you're kind of too young to be the domestic policy advisor. So Go talk to my friend Arnie Miller. He runs the biggest search firm in the world that does specifically nonprofit executive search work. And you'll, you will, he'll find you a job in the nonprofit sector. You'll go, you'll hide out for four years, do something good there, and then you'll come back and do something big on Al Gore's presidential campaign. And mm -hmm. I said, great, sounds smart. So I sat down with Arnie about a week later, and about five minutes into the interview, he says, you don't want to work in the nonprofit sector. You want to come work for me. I'll teach you everything you need to know about leadership. <laughs> Arnie Miller, by the way, is the person to whom this book, my second book, is dedicated. Uh -huh. So these are my two mentors, my two bosses. And at the time, I'm dating a much better guy for me who <laughs> happens to be the man that I married and I've been married to for the last almost 25 years. And uh, I was like, hmm, you work out of Boston. My boyfriend's about to move to Boston. Yes, awesome. Let's do it. I'll take the job. What exactly do you do? <laughs> yeah. And I became a headhunter. So I ended up, you know, and the truth is, I really left the White House having uh, no real ostensible skill set. 
but a Rolodex that could choke a horse, right? Yeah. I'm 25 years old. I don't know my head from my behind. And, but I know a lot of people. Yeah. So I become a headhunter for nonprofits and I work to, to, to match people who are um, amazingly qualified, skilled, fantastically successful people with opportunities to change the world in ways that they'd like. And it was a great job. I loved it. It was it was fascinating. I learned a ton about people. I, I, I it was my first job, you know, in a in a in a in a corporate in the corporate world. So I had government and corporate work. But about four years into it, really learning from the best and the brightest how to do this work, I I had this. It was like a moment of rage, really, where I just said, "There's a better way to do this, right?" Like if I'm sitting on one side of the table and my clients on the other side, and over there, they're curing cancer. They're feeding the poor. They're, yeah. you know, saving the, the, the ice caps from melting. And over here, I'm supposed to be doing the same thing. But on this side of the table, there's this thing in between us, which is the profit and loss statement of the company. And my boss, while he cares about the mission of the organizations, he really cares about the profit of the company. For him, it's profit first, mission second. And I came to the work because I cared about the mission first. Mm-hmm. And I had this understanding that if you did the work well and you cared about the mission of your clients, the money would come. And so I just, I had this way that we could do it differently. And I marched into his office with my little Jerry Maguire manifesto. I'm like, here's how we should do it. And he's like, there's the door. (laughs) Not in so many words. He basically said, look, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. We're not going to do it that way. So if you want to stay, you can, you do great work. We love you. Wonderful. And if you want to leave you can go do it your way. It's really your choice. And I had this realization that I, if I wasn't part of the solution, then I was part of the problem. Mm. And I, and that was very difficult for me, uh, to, to, to stay in at the same time. Uh, his, there was like a, 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 a schism in the company where half of the partners went to one side and sort of left him by himself on the other side with a lot of, a lot of debt to his name. And I, you know, recently married, we had just bought our first condo. And I thought to myself, if he folds, I'm going to, you know, going to lose my house. Like, like, like I, I need to keep making money, right? Like mm-hmm. this is a problem. And I helped him rebuild his side of the business. And after I did that, I started selling a, a pretty good chunk of, of what was in my portfolio, the work that I was doing. So I marched into his office one day and I was like, okay, well, I, I, I am an associate here at the firm. I think you need to give me a better title because I'm going out, I'm representing the firm in the real world and I'm, you know, 27, 28 years old and I'm just, you know, Laura Gassner Odding associate. Mm-hmm. And he yelled me out of his office. I don't need a title. I don't have a title. What do you need a title for? What are you thinking about? You know, I need a title. I was like, your name's on the door. If you yeah. want to put my name on the door, then I don't need a title either. But if you're not going to put my name on the door, I need a title. And, and a week later, he brings a friend in and he says, this is my friend. She's going to be a new vice president here. She doesn't have any background in search, but she's a grown-up and we need grown-ups like her. Mm. And I sort of looked at him and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go. Goodbye. It's Friday afternoon. <laughs> I'm going to go home now. I'm going to come back on Monday and you're going to tell me about my future here because right now I don't see one. Mm. And I think there are very few moments in your life where you, where you hold all the cards, right? And I think there are even fewer where you realize it. And this was one of those moments where I was like, okay, this, this ain't right. And, and, and he needs to, and we both know it and he needs to make it right. So I came into the office on Monday morning 
And he said, I'm, I, um, I apologize. I, that, that wasn't the right thing to do. I shouldn't have done that. I'm prepared to make you a vice president. I'm prepared to give you this raise. I'm prepared to do all these things. And I was like, all I wanted to do was be a senior associate, right? Like, yeah. awesome. So I spent the next six months there really helping rebuild um, the, the, the company. And then I left and I, and I decided I, I had to do it my way. And so that's when the entrepreneurial journey began. You know, I'd love to say I had this moment of rage and I raced out and I did it and everything was perfect, but I really had to put all the ducks in a row in order to do that. And some of that was being able to leave and start my own thing as she was a vice president at Isaacson Miller, as opposed to, well, she was just an associate and then left because yeah. I was young, right? So it's like the entrepreneurial journey is, it's hard because you can't always leave the minute you want to leave. And yeah. sometimes you don't leave soon enough, but you have the timing is really important. Yeah. So how were you able to, at 29, 30-ish? Mm-hmm to make that jump because I know as you said there's a there's a lot of people in that situation that want to make that jump and whether it's personal finances or just uh the lack of courage to do so or just fear of the unknown right how did you make the step and then how did you go about actually executing did you raise money did you fund funded yourself how did you sort of spin this into what became a 15 year long yeah. Business. Yeah. Right? Well, yeah. um, I was about 11 months pregnant. Yep. Um, <laughs> so throw that in the mix. <laughs> pro tip, really bad time to make important life decisions. Um, but I basically, uh, I, you know, I do a lot of speaking in entrepreneurial, uh, in entrepreneurial conferences, you know, entrepreneurship classes. Mm -hmm. And I always get asked this question of like, well, how long did it take you to write your business plan? And I'm like, I don't know. You got a cocktail napkin? Like I'll write it right now. Yeah. Um, I didn't have I didn't have a business plan. I didn't have a mm -hmm. plan, but I had business, right? Like I had a huge network of people. Um, I, I, non-competes are really pretty hard to enforce, right? Non-solicits, fine. That's one thing, but non-competes are pretty hard. Somebody can't take away your, your, your livelihood, your, right, your, your right. way you make a living. Um, and, and most companies won't go after you because it's not worth it for them in legal fees. And they think you'll back down because you don't have any money to mm -hmm. do it, but it, it, you kind of can call their bluff sometimes on that. Um, I happened to not have a non-compete, so it, it made it really easy. But I had this huge network from before I was at Isaacson Miller. So I had, um, I, I didn't have, the, the, a non-solicit says you can't solicit anybody you've met through us, but if you have a network of people before or a network of people you bring to it, they're still your people. Yep. So I was able to, um, I, <clears throat> I, I left, uh, so... <laughs> I had 24 hours of labor and an unplanned C-section with my first child. <laughs> so I had given birth. It was about four weeks after I gave birth. And I'm literally sitting at my kitchen table with like total stranger baby in my arms trying to figure out like what on earth happened to me. I'm still not really able to like walk from the table to the bathroom without assistance. Like I was, you know, it was, it's a pretty dr traumatic experience. And my phone rings and it's a friend of mine back from my White House days. And she says, um, so, uh, Ew, I heard you had a baby. <laughs> that's, that's cool, I guess. Uh, but are you still doing search? Because the CEO of my nonprofit just resigned and we need somebody. And I was like, well, yes, I am. <laughs> and she said, great. What do you charge? And I was like, uh, $100 an hour. <laughs> like, I just like, making it up. And she's like, great, send me a contract. So I literally opened my laptop and I Google with like the one hand that's not holding the baby. I was like, how to write a professional services contract? Enter. <laughs> and that's how I wrote my yeah. first contract. So I didn't 
really know what I was doing. Um, I knew that I wanted to work with nonprofits. I knew I wanted to work at the professional level. I knew I wanted to advise them. And I knew I wanted people to think it was more than just me and the baby and the Dalmatian we had at the time. So we'd be, you know, we were the nonprofit professionals advisory group. Mm-hmm. Again, don't make big decisions when you're 11 months pregnant because you <laughs> name things the nonprofit professionals advisory group. Not exactly Seth Did you Godin have an level. acronym for that? Or yeah, sure, NPAG. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seth Godin would not be proud. I'm just saying there was not a lot of good marketing in this. In fact, funny story, Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life, was originally going to be called Purpose, Doing Work That Matters. Mm. Yeah, would have sold six copies, five of which would go to my mom, right? <laughs> I'm not good. And whenever anyone's like, I'm starting a new thing, help me name it. I'm like, no, you don't want my help. <laughs> I can help you dream huge, but I cannot name. That is just, that is not my strength. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't, uh, it, it wasn't so much that I self-funded, it was that I didn't have any overhead, mm-hmm. right? I'm doing professional services work. I'm working out of my house. It's a, right. it's, it's, it is a, um, you know, a brain-based business. Just get your first client and go. Right. So, yeah. you know, you, ha- and, and here's the thing, good work begets more good work, right? Mm-hmm. If you do good work and remember it's executive search. So I'm literally getting paid to meet a hundred new people with every single project. So if I'm out there and I'm representing my client well, and I'm getting people excited about an idea and I'm treating the candidates well, and I'm doing the references in such a deep way that people are like, Oh, I've never been asked such good questions before, right? I'm getting paid to meet hundreds of people each project. Mm-hmm. So if that's not a self-fulfilling pipeline, then it, you don't deserve to be in business, right? Mm-hmm. Like it should be a self, we never advertised ever. And so, yeah, so the business was born and I, you know, I took on basically any work I could. So I would do hourly references or I would do, you know, training of clients on how to interview better. Obviously I wanted to do full, you know, three to four month search projects, but I, you know, I, I did what I could in between nap time and, and, you know, in the beginning I, I would work when the baby was napping and then when the baby wasn't, I sort of hoped the baby would be quiet while I was on a conference call and I always have my finger hovering over the mute button. You know, it, it was, it was, it was, it, it was good that there really weren't a lot of video conferences back then yeah. because I, I it, it was a lot of, it was a lot of fancy footwork in order to look legit to the outside world mm-hmm. when in fact I was I was like paddling so fast underwater. It was amazing. It was amazing that I didn't create a tidal wave. Mm. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so 15 years, you sell the business. And then from there, do you have a plan when you sell the business? Do you no. kind of know what's next or? No. So here's the theme. As you can tell, there's, there's sort of never been a plan, right? <laughs> yeah. So my entire modus operandi in my life is do interesting things with interesting people and interesting opportunities arise. Mm-hmm. So there's never been, I mean, the only plan I ever had was, you know, become a lawyer and run for office, which I, you know, disposed of by the time I was 20. So like, like I don't know, plans are plain. You write your plans in pencil and the world changes. So I ran the company for 10 years. I grew it hundred percent every year for 10 years, about five years into it. I brought on a business partner cause I realized I was the world's worst manager mm-hmm. ever. Um, and at the 10 year mark, I turned to her and I said, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I need a five-year plan. We were doing work very differently than it was traditionally done in the nonprofit sector. And when we first launched, we needed somebody who was brash and full, full of, filled, with, uh, filled with moxie and iconoclastic and was like, you shouldn't be doing it that way. That's ridiculous. You deserve better. Here's a new way. 
And by like year seven or year eight, we'd spawned a lot of competition. You know, people clicked in to the fact that yeah. this was the right way to do it. And I thought that was a huge compliment. But by year nine and year 10, it was like, okay, it's not really about going in and being the smartest people on the block because everyone else is doing it our way. They've all copied us now. It's about doing it the best. And I don't know. I never actually really loved executive search. It wasn't like my calling in life. I really enjoyed the entrepreneurship. I enjoyed building the business. I enjoyed doubling it, you know, growing at 100% every single year. And by the time we got to year 10, I could see that as the CEO, it was my job to be 18 to 24 months ahead of the market. Like if I was doing really, really well in my job, I was coming up with solutions to problems our clients didn't even yet realize they had. But my team who was doing the actual work, if they were doing really well, they were firing on all cylinders, their job was to be focused on this week, this month, maybe this quarter. But they were focused on the deliverable, deliverable to the client today. Mm-hmm. So the better I got at my job and the better they got at their job, the further apart we were. Right. And the more of different language we were speaking and the you know, different things we were incentivized by. And I realized that rather than needing this iconoclastic in your face, things should be, it's got to be, it can be a better. I realized that what, the, the, what the, the firm really needed was somebody who was super geeked out about the quality of the work and managing the people and dealing with everyday quality improvement. And my business partner was exactly that person. Mm-hmm. And I turned to her and I was like, I need a five-year plan. I'm going to leave. The firm doesn't need me. It needs you. And she went, no, that's wrong. I don't agree. You can't leave. And it took like a year and a half to go through the process of her believing I was going to leave and then, you know, being okay with it. And it was like sort of all of the, you know, sort of the, all of the, all of the, the, you know, you hear about like the stages of grief, right? You know, there was denial and there was negotiation and there was Mm -hmm. anger. We sort of went through all of that. And then she finally onboarded the fact that I was going to, I was leaving. I was leaving one way or the other, right? In 15 years, the the firm would be uh, around for 15 years. I was going to be 45 and I will have been doing executive search for 20 years. I was like, these are nice, good numbers, it's like, there's a coda paragraph, I'm done, right? So we did that, then we did evaluation, uh, and that's where things got really hairy, right? Because she turned to me and she said, the firm's worth a lot of money, and we don't have that kind of cash, we can't pay you that. And mm. even if we did that, have that kind of money, if we paid you that, and then you leave as the founder, and the firm goes belly up because the founder's gone, we're left holding the bag. So... Mm we're not, we, we could just shut the thing down and start our own thing. So yeah. why would we do that? And I'm very proud of the fact that everything I've ever created in my career still exists, mm. whether it's, you know, a Montessori school I helped found or AmeriCorps or, you know, a political action committee, anything, everything still like I, I, I'm very interested in building institutions and not cathedrals. So I'm, I'm proud of that fact. And the thought of, the firm disappearing because we couldn't figure out how to sell it, it really shook me to my core. Mm. And so I, I was, I actually, first I was insulted, right? I got my panties all in a bunch because I was like, what do you mean? It's, I'm not worth it. It's not worth it. I helped build this thing. This was my idea. I didn't pay myself for the first few years. How insulting. Yeah. Like you think I'm not worth this. But then I realized that in fact, it's pretty scary for them. Right. So how do we come up with a with with a a solution that works for both of us? And the solution was uh, and I didn't come up with this. My brilliant friend, friend, Matt Ridings, came up with this. I sold them the firm for a dollar and I sold them the firm for a dollar plus 
a percentage of revenue every year for the following five years, mm. as long as the firm showed even $1 of profit. Wow. Which meant that, and because, and we figured out the percentage based on what would that valuation be if we chunked it out over five years. And then that was the percentage. And the idea was this way, it's basically a non-taxable event for them. They can pay me as, you know, a consultant going right. forward. Um, and we both have skin in the game. So it's in my best interest to help keep them alive, right? It's in their best interest to, to, to make sure that, you know, that I'm invested and that I'm, that, that I'm there and I'm helping them grow and not bad-mouthing them. So everybody has incentive to keep the business growing. Mm. And this June will be the end of that five years. And I'm actually going to make more money out of it than I would have if they would have just given me the check. Amazing. Yeah. So, you know, you want to talk about what, you know, does abundance mentality work? Absolutely. Right. Mm. They've grown much more. They're making much more money than they would have otherwise. I'm getting paid out much more money. They're thriving. I'm happy. Everybody's great. And it's all because we had, you know, I had to subsume my ego to this question of, do I want to build a cathedral or do I want to build an institution? And mm. I think, Abundance and in institutions win every time. I love it. I love it. So to jump into the book, mm -hmm. which is sort of... Uh, if anyone's still listening. After that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this. So, so the book, um, sort of the opening parts, you talk about that word consonance. Mm -hmm. And I know you have kind of four uh, parts to what that is. Um, but do you want to... Well, I have a question first. Yeah. During that 15-year span, did you have consonants in your life, or is that something that you, you were lacking and something that you're now stepping into with your speaking and writing and things like that now? Yeah, so the idea of consonants is, you know, consonants means alignment. It means flow. It means harmony. Mm. And I think... We don't have it because we're told by other people at every point in our life what success should look like, right? The fourth grade teacher saying you should be a lawyer, right? All of the, all of the times in our life when we're told you should, you must, you can't, you know, and God forbid you can't, right? And we all have yeah. these scorecards that we carry around in our back pockets that determine for us what our success should look like. And I did have consonants when I was running my firm for the first 10 years, and then I didn't. And then I needed to make a change, right? I didn't have consonants. I had consonants at Isaacson Miller, and then I didn't, and I needed to make a change. So I think we get, I think we, we get consonants wrong for a couple of reasons. The first is because we don't understand what it is, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. And the second is that when we do feel it, we think that that's what it should be forever, right? So when you're 16, 17, 18 years old, somebody says to you, pick a path, pick a trade, pick a college, pick a major, pick a job. Which is right? a ridiculous thing to ask and a you 16 go, year old kid. Okay. But okay. Like what, like what don't you have when you're 16? Like a frontal lobe, like the frontal lobe is literally the part of your brain that helps you determine good decision making. So we're asked to make this decision that's going to impact the rest of our lives before yep. we do, before we actually have the capacity to make good ones. Mm -hmm. like, that is tragic. And, and for, I'm not saying yeah. that we should like keep kids, kids forever. I'm just saying, don't put the burden of the rest of your life yeah. on a kid who can't figure out where their socks are. Like, that's right. just, And for many, the decision to step into a quarter million dollars worth of debt as well, which is a whole other Which is a whole other conversation. Yeah. So, you know, when the book first came out, I did, I was telling you earlier, I did like 128 podcasts. And on one of them, this guy was like, well, what advice would you give your 22-year-old self? And I wanted to be like, that's the stupidest question ever. But what I said was, <laughs> well, my 22-year-old self who's listening to this podcast that was recorded over the internet on my cell phone. 
None of those things existed when I was 22. Mm -hmm. So even if I did know who I was and I was making a good decision when I was 16, 17, 18, the world around me has changed so much that it still wouldn't last. So we get consonants wrong because we let somebody else define it, number one. And then we get it wrong because we don't give ourselves the grace to redefine it over and over and over. So I did have consonants during those 15 years in part. And then when I didn't, I made changes to make sure that I did. And when I describe consonants, I will say to people that my definition of consonants and your definition of consonants are going to be completely different. Right. But also your definition of consonants today is going to be different than it was 10 years ago. And it's going mm -hmm. to be different than it was 10 years from now. And it should be, or you're not, you're not growing. You're not evolving. Right? Yeah. Right. And you're, or you're not paying attention to the world around you. Mm. Right. So I think it's, it's so, so I'll tell, so consonants is made up of four things and, and it came from during my executive search work, I interviewed thousands of people, thousands. And these are all people, remember, they were nonprofit people. So they had purpose, higher purpose, lofty purpose. So you'd think they would all, you know, be totally yeah. you know, in line with who they were. Um, I interviewed them because they were super successful, right? As a headhunter, I only wanted to talk to the people that were super successful. That's why I was talking to them. But they were all talking to me because they weren't that happy. And I was fascinated by the idea that success didn't always equal happiness. Mm -hmm. So I started to think about who were the people that I interviewed who had both. And I started to think about what were the things that I did in my life, specifically leaving law school, joining that presidential campaign, uh, working in the White House, going to the best and the brightest and learning about how to help connect people to things that mattered, having that moment of rage and starting my own business, deciding to leave that when I could just mail it in for the rest of my career and be perfectly fine. Like, what were the things that I did along the way? And I came up with four things that, that comprise consonants. The first is calling. So calling is, it's, it's that gravitational force. It's the thing that you care about. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning. And for some of us, it could be building a business. For some of us, it could be nurturing a family. For some of us, it could be curing cancer. For some of us, it could be buying a Maserati in a beach house. It is just your purpose. Mm -hmm. So, and I feel like I am an unimpeachable source to talk about this one particular fact, which is that your purpose doesn't have to be higher purpose or lofty purpose or noble purpose. I'm not going to purpose shame anybody. Like if you want to, if you want to, unless you're like tying young children to looms, you know, in, 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 in Indonesia, I'm all for whatever it is that you want to do. Yeah, if your purpose is go live on Key West the rest of your life. Rock awesome. on. Awesome. Right. <laughs> like nobody gets a vote in your life. Nobody gets to decide. Like we keep giving, we keep giving votes in our, in our lives to people who shouldn't even have voices. And I mm. think nobody gets to decide what your purpose is, but you. So that's, that's your calling. So just figure out what it is that actually gets you going and do that. The second piece is connection. Connection answers the question, does your work even matter? Right? Like what if you called into work sick tomorrow? Would anybody notice? Would anybody mm. care? Like, would it make a difference? Does the work you're doing on a daily basis actually connect to the calling that you want to serve? So look at your inbox, look at your calendar, look at your email, and make a decision about whether or not you're actually busy or are you creating impact towards the thing that you mm. want. The third piece is contribution. So if connection is really about the work, contribution is about you. How does this job, this brand, this paycheck, this mission allow you to live the life that you want? afford the lifestyle that you, that, that you desire, build the career trajectory that you're looking for, or manifest your values on a daily basis. How does this job co contribute to you being able to have that life that you want? Right? Mm. And then the third one is control. And control really 
is about how much personal agency do you have to affect change in your own life? So can you decide what projects you work on, what goes on your calendar, what kinds of emails you have to answer, what, who your customers are, how much your daily hustle impacts, you know, how much you get to earn? And do you get to decide in terms of contribution, are, are you able to put yourself in line for promotion? Are you able to get seen? Are you able to be part of the decision-making about how your, your company talks about philanthropy and how they manifest who they are? How, does the, the, how, does the, the, how much agency do you have over how much your work connects to that calling and how much it contributes to your life? Mm. And at every age and at every life stage, it's different. So when I dropped out of law school and I was willing to live on that campaign bus, and eat cold pizza, I mean, I had no contribution at all. I was not making any money. I certainly had no control over whether they sent me to Minneapolis or Little Rock, but I had all the calling in the world. I had tons of calling. Connection, no. I was getting the coffee for the guy who got the coffee who got the coffee. Mm. But I knew that if this guy won, I could have a pretty interesting job, right? So mm. that's a lot of career trajectory. That's very different than now when I'm 49 and I've got, you know, older parents and I've got teenage kids. And if I'm going to, I was telling you earlier about my crazy travel schedule, traveling all over the world, doing these, these speeches, uh, for the book, if I'm going to get on a plane, I mean, I won't get on a plane and agree to speak somewhere until I've looked at the flight home. And I know that I can get from the speech to the airport so I can get home that night. Mm. Like I'll say no to something if I can't, because it's important to me to wake up in my own bed and be here to have, see my kids on the weekend. So yeah. I want to have all that control. So, you know, at every age and at every life stage, we're all going to have a different rubric of what makes up our consonants. But when you have consonants, you can feel like the what you do matches who you are in a way where the very best of what you do is being called upon to solve the problems you care about and you're being rewarded for in a way that's actually meaningful to you, whether that's your time or your energy or your knowledge or money. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And, and, I loved another part where you said purpose does not mean self-sacrifice. And I have a amazing friend in the venture capital world and he's like an impact investor and his, his slogan, it made me think of this slogan, uh, there is great wealth in doing the right thing. Mm. And I thought that was just spot on to kind of what you're saying. You don't have to, you know, earn less or, you know, sacrifice your desires to do good in the world. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I'm, I am a firm believer that if you are the kind of person who is capable of making millions and millions and millions of dollars a year, then you are actually better serving the cause you care about by making all that money absolutely. and then donating some of it back rather mm. than being in a job where maybe you're not your very best version of yourself trying to serve that cause. And again, this is why I say I feel like I'm an unimpeachable source on this because I spent 20 years placing people in nonprofit jobs that for me to be able to say to somebody, it's okay. Sometimes what this organization needs is for you just to write a check. Mm. So I did a TEDx talk when I, when I left when I, when I sold my firm to my team, I had this moment of crisis, an identity crisis, where I was like, when I was no longer LGO, CEO, I was like, <laughs> who am I? And I got asked to do a, a TEDx talk after blogging a bunch about this idea. Uh, and the, the title of the talk is Stop Asking How Can I Help? Mm. Because we have this, you know, big things happen in the world and we go, oh, there's, you know, there, there, there are... 
there are forest fires in, you know, all of Australia is burning. What do we do? And everyone's like, we should send stuff koalas. <laughs> like we should yeah. like do all these crazy things. Or there's a, or there's a, an earthquake in Haiti and we collect winter coats or, mm-hmm. or, um, you know, there, there's a shooting at Sandy Hook and we send 60,000 teddy bears, 60,000 teddy bears to send on Sandy Hook, the little town of Sandy Hook, Connecticut. There are 25,000 people in total who live in that town, right? 67,000 teddy bears. And this is this question of connection, right? Like we're all so busy and we're building these, these cathedrals of short-term comfort by saying, how can I help? How can I put myself right in the center of the, the problem and make it about me as a mm. solution? But if we said what needs to happen... Well, what needs to happen is we need to send money. We need to send supplies. We need to right. not put ourselves on the airplane and take up space where an EMT could actually fly down there and actually provide help. You know, we stop sending milk to Japan, right? Like, not big dairy drinkers, and it's just going to go bad. Because the money that it takes to, 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 to buy and ship and store and then eventually incinerate all these things that are not used could be better used for, you know, Red Cross supplies and right. medical supplies and, and grief counseling and all of the rest of the stuff that we know actually works. So, so this, this question of, um, do I need to be the person who's sacrificing myself in order to be, in order to be of service to the thing I care about? I, I relieve everybody of the guilt of that by saying, if you stopped asking, how can I help and started asking what needs to happen? Well, what needs to happen is maybe you need to go make a lot of money so Mm. that you can give it to the thing you actually care about. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. More money, more impact. That's, that's how I view things. Um, so consonants is the basis of becoming limitless. Yes. Correct. Yes. So yet another line in there that I loved, what's the cost of not becoming limitless? I love that question you asked because it's like, (laughs) it's like, what are you, what are you leaving on the table by not living in consonants? Okay. So, you know, um, have you ever had one of those moments where you just feel like you're firing on all cylinders, like you're making it rain, you're closing the deal, you're solving the problem, right? Maybe you're in front of a big audience, you're bringing the house down, you're getting a standing ovation, yep. or maybe it's a quiet moment, like you're helping your girlfriend through a problem, or you're you're working on the spreadsheet, or you're you know putting the final you know details in the presentation that you know are going to win the deal, but it's just you alone in the dark. Those are those moments when you can just walk through walls. You, you are limitless. And, yep. and, and this is, there's a great Harvard Business Review article about your fundamental state of leadership. This is you in your best fundamental state of like who you are when you're your very best version. And, and my issue with books like Lean In are, 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 they have this one myopic singular definition of success that it's like the fastest and most expedient path to the corner mm. office is the only one that matters. When in fact, your version of your fundamental best self may be very different from that corner office. Like I got to the corner office. I was the vice president of the firm. And I was like, yeah, I got to the top. But the top of what? This doesn't work for me. So so when you are limitless, you're able to not lean into that definition, but lean into your own very best version of yourself as much as you possibly can so that that version becomes your muscle memory every single day. And you Mm. become that person more and more and more. And that's what it feels like to be limitless. Like your go-to is you don't have to find that person. You're just there all the time. Mm. So the cost of not being there is that you actually don't show up as your very best version. You're not mm, making it rain. That. You're not closing the deal. You're not, you're not there for your loved ones. You know, I, I, get, I get a lot of people, and especially women, who will say, oh, yeah, but it just it sounds like selfish, right? It sounds ambitious. It mm-hmm. sounds, I don't know, it sounds so narcissistic for me to say, I want to go be the very best version of myself. 
And I ask them all the time, and I'll ask this from stage, I'll ask this in front of 5,000 people, I'll say, like, answer me this. If you were to show up as the very best version of yourself and show up better for the people you love and the causes you hold dear, would you need more money? Yes. Would you need more time? Yes. Would you need more leverage, more flexibility, more power, more knowledge, more of whatever? Like, have, would having more of these things allow you to show up better for the people you love and the causes you hold dear? And they're like, well, yeah, obviously. And I'm like, yeah, then it's not your ambition. It's mm. not your selfishness. It's your responsibility. So at the end of my talks, I often ask the question, three questions. I get, I get introduced on stage as a kick in the ass wrapped in a warm hug. So this is sort of the like, <laughs> all right, well, here it is. Here's a kick in the ass and the warm hug. And I ask the questions, what would it feel like? What does it feel like when you are truly limitless, when you are the most limitless version of yourself? Number one. Number two, what do you need to do today, right now, this afternoon, to get there, to get closer to being that person? And the third is, what would be the cost if you don't? Mm. And I think the cost, if you don't, is that you're going to look back one day and go, it's regret. I lived this really yeah. great life on paper that looked right for someone else, but it didn't feel right for me. It's regret, right? It's, it is when you get, you know, you get these, these, these palliative care nurses that interview people when they're dying and they say the biggest regret that people have is that they lived the life that everyone else expected of them. Yep. They lived into everyone else's expectation. Yep. We all get one big juicy life and that's it. Mm. I don't want to live someone else's. I want you're to live gonna mine. Die. That's what I always say. You're, you're going to die. What, yeah, are you, like, what are you doing? Right. That's Gary V's thing. Like what are, yeah, what are, Gary yeah. Thing, like exactly. what are, what are the scariest words in English language? You're going to die. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Well, and that's why like, I think the four worst words are I'll be happy when I'll mm. be happy when I get the raise. I'll be happy when I get the promotion. I'll be happy when I get married. I'll be happy when I get divorced. I'll be happy mm. when I, you know, lose the fat. I'll be happy when I gain the muscle. Like oh, screw that. Like I want to be happy now. Mm. You can get hit by a bus tomorrow. Let's be happy now. Mm. And we're the only ones who get to decide what happiness is because, you know, I, you know I, if I had followed everyone else's path to everyone else's version of success, my life would look very different right now and I wouldn't be so happy. I might not know, right, because it's like a sliding door. You don't get a, you don't, there's no, there's no control group. Yeah, you, you can't tell what would have happened if you chose the other thing, right? Right. You never know the... Uh what the alternative would have You don't know. Out. But if you're listening, if you're, if anybody's listening to this podcast and they're thinking something's missing, but I just don't know quite what it is, the odds are that your life looks really good on paper, but it doesn't feel good to you because it's not right for you. Mm. And that's why you have to find your consonants. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I want to, I want to pivot real quick here to, and you, you gave a good lead in there about uh, being selfish and showing up as your best self. And I tell that to people all the time uh, when it comes to health and wellness. Mm. So I am curious uh, to sort of dig into some of the habits and practices you have adopted, I'm told, within the past 10 yes, years. Yes, I am so <laughs> new to athleticism. In fact, in fact, I, so I, I row on a... Um... So how'd you get into rowing? Just erging or do you actually row in the water? No, I row. I'm on, yeah. I'm on a master's level competitive team and yeah. we'll be out in the water and the coach will come up, you know, on his little launch. He'll be like, okay, athletes for this next piece, we're going to do this, that, and the other. And I'm like, athletes, <laughs> call me an athlete. Like, are it's you, still funny to me that I'm an athlete. Are you doing it on the Charles? Or? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's amazing. What's the, is it a specific club? Yeah, it's community team? rowing. Community rowing, yeah. 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 So I am, um, so... <laughs> So I woke up one day when I was 39 years old and 
I wasn't fat. I wasn't thin. In fact, I weighed 10 pounds less than I weigh now. Right. Mm. And, and, uh, you know, you, your people can't see me, but my, the jeans I'm wearing are like a size 26. So I, you know, I'm a small person, five foot five, which is also hilarious that I'm a rower. Um, and, <laughs> but I'm, I'm in the bow seat. I'm a good lightweight rower. Um, so, so I woke up, I was 39 years old. I weighed like 125 pounds and I was like, ah, like I'm not heavy, I'm not thin, I'm not out of shape. I, you know, I was active, but I'd done like step classes and aerobics. Like I it was not really, I wasn't, I was never athletic. And I walked into, but everything started to hurt a little bit, you know, like things, things were starting to break. Yeah. And I walked into my kid's school and the head of school is this woman by the name of Ellen and she's like 65 years old and I hadn't seen her in a couple months. And she looked amazing. Like she looked really good. She'd lost a lot of weight. And I was like, Ellen, you look, you look amazing. Is there like, what's like, were you really sick or is there a new man in your life? Cause like, wow. <laughs> and like, you look way too good to have been really sick. So what's his name? And she's like, well, actually there is a new man in my life and his name is Mike, coach Mike. <laughs> and then Ellen proceeds to drag me to the dirtiest, dustiest, dankest basement of a boys and girls club <laughs> in Watertown where coach Mike makes us do calisthenics and we do calisthenics for 45 minutes, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And at the end of the class, he hands out 37 little tiny straws and you have to run 37 times around this gym, giving him a straw every time. So you can't cheat. And trust me, I tried. And it took me six weeks to go 37 laps, which equaled a mile. It took me mm. six weeks to go a mile without mm. actually needing to like heave or hurl literally. And at the end of the six weeks, when I ran the mile, I was like, you know, if I string three of these together, I could run a 5K. So I signed up for one, and I signed up for the Heartbreak Hill 5K, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Again, if you thought naming a business when you're 11 months pregnant is bad news, deciding your first 5K is going to be the one all around the hills of Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, that was really dumb. So <laughs> I had men that were like passing me and with double joggers going up the hill, women with these big fashion glasses and their Lululemon were like sprightly <laughs> running next to me. Um, but I did it. I didn't run it, <laughs> but I did it. I finished it. And at the end, I thought, if I string two of those together, I could do a 10K. Mm -hmm. So I did a 10K. And then at the end of the 10K, I was like, I could do a half marathon. And then, of course, I live in Boston. So I was like, what if I did the Boston Marathon? And I turned to my husband. And I was like, I'm going to run the Boston Marathon. He's like, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> um, and he's like, and by the way, you're slow. So you're not going to qualify. So yeah, good luck to you. But, you know, again, 20 years with nonprofits, mm -hmm. I um, had mm -hmm. a lot of connections. So mm -hmm. I'm like, if I can get a bib in the next five minutes, will you support me without, you know, telling me for the next four <laughs> months that I'm stupid? Um, and he's like, sure. I was like, you know what? I'm like, make it four. So I post on Facebook, today, the carriage roads, next April, Hereford and Boylston. And within 30 seconds, I had like 10 friends that were executive directors of nonprofits. They're like, run for us, run for us, run for us. So I had a bib. So Beautiful. I ran the Boston Marathon. <laughs> and and so I went from having never run a mile to running the Boston Marathon in about seven months. And I ran it in 2012 where it was mm -hmm. 92 degrees. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that was hard. Around mile 16, I ran into my husband and he put ice packs with uh, like uh, Ziplocs with ice in my bra. Mm -hmm. And at mile 17, I ran to a friend and she was like, oh my God, look at your ice. That's 
brilliant. I was like, where'd these come from? I mean, I was so (laughs) out of of it. So out of it. Um, I was pacing myself behind a woman as we were turning onto Boylston street, you know, which for people who aren't, who don't know is like a half mile from the finish. And the woman looks at a cop on the side of the road and she's like, I'm done. Let me out. And I was like, I will carry you. Like she, nobody, like we didn't, nobody knew our names. Mm. All of us, you know, like the Kenyans knew their names. They were amazing. (laughs) But like all of us charity runners, we were, we were toast. So the next morning I woke up and I was feeling very sorry for myself that I was training for the sub four hour marathon and I got a five hour and six minute, Mm. 92 degree marathon. And my friend calls me up and she's like, remember we were talking about Chicago? Wouldn't it feel good to just get out of your system and run Chicago? And I was like, yeah, maybe. She goes, good, because I signed us up. (laughs) So four months later, I ran Chicago. And then I was never going to run another. I did that in 409. Um, I was never going to run another marathon. And the Boston Marathon bombing happened. Mm. And I was very closely connected because I was a charity runner to a lot of those people. And I was closely connected to, I was on the course and I had been there all day. And I, you know, I was part of, deeply part of that. So I decided to run in 2014. So I went from having never run in my life to running a mile to running three marathons within about a two-year, two-and-a-half-year mm. state. So I broke my body a lot. So I went to the gym, and I got connected with a trainer who introduced me to lifting weights for the first time in my life. I was like, oh, no, I can't lift up anything more than five pounds. I don't want big muscles. And he was like, are you going to take testosterone? Because you literally do not have the capacity to build those kinds of muscles if you're not going to. And, um, and he taught me to deadlift. I can deadlift 225 mm. pounds. It's amazing. He got me to a place where I now am 10 pounds heavier than I was when I ran the Boston Marathon. But I was 124 then and had 22% body fat. And now I weigh 132 and I have like... 17%, 16% body fat. Like I just, I never understood that diet Coke and lean cuisines weren't real food. And I never understood that like lifting weight could actually be cardio. Like I just thought you just got on the Stairmaster and did it forever and mm-hmm. ever and ever. And you became a sorority girl size again. Like I just, what I assumed happened, but he was a rower and he mm, talked to gotcha. me a lot about rowing. And then I was like, that sounds really interesting. And I ended up, I ended up rowing. Yeah. I love it. I always tell people, I, uh, I played 15 years of, of football, played, played through college. The yeah. only sport I rode in high school, ah, the okay. only sport I've been rushed to the emergency room is, is crew. Well, so <laughs> I'll tell you then the other half of the story, which is as I was, as I was getting to understand rowing, uh, he was doing this race where, uh, it's like a, uh, there, there are Eastern sprints where on the Saturday you do a six K on the erg mm-hmm. and that decides your position basically yep. for the, you know, for the Sunday race on the water. Yep. Um, and I was like, six K, I don't, I don't think I could row six K. I don't think I can do that. So the Saturday that he was going to do it, I was like, all right, well, I'll just do it with him in spirit. So I got on the erg at the gym and I mm-hmm. rode six K. And when I saw him the following Monday, I told him my time and he was like, huh, that's not terrible so for, awful. and I was like, for an old lady. And he's like, well, I was going to say for a novice, <laughs> but a novice old lady. Yes. So because you should sign up for the Crash Bees. Do you know the Crash Bees? No. Okay. So the Crash Bees are the Charles River All-Star has-beens. That's Crash Bees. Mm-hmm. The Crash Bees. And it takes place in a Gannis Arena every year. And it's a, it's a 2K on the ergs indoors. Oh, the 2K is the worst. People flying from all over the world. Yeah. So he was like, you should sign up for the Crash Bees. And I said, what's the Crash Bees? And six weeks later, I'm sitting on the erg in the middle of the Crash Bees. Uh, and I play sixth in my age group internationally for lightweight women, 40 to 49 years old. Wow. So he goes, you should go. That's amazing. And you should go. And it was like a sub eight minute, right? Yeah, so yeah. like from that's yeah. pretty good for, yeah. you know, me. I was 756. So it's pretty good for, you know, me being my, you know, buck 30 and five, five. 
she goes, you should go, uh, you should go try out for the, the women's competitive team. So I like march myself into community rowing and I'm like, hello, <laughs> here I am with my 756. And they were like, that's great, but ergs don't float. So you need to learn how to row. So I show up the next spring and I get in the barge and I learn how to row. And then I come back the next year and I was like, I am back. And I made the team and I, the, the, the coach was like, well, you're strong as can be. You don't weigh a lot. So you can de- literally pull your weight in the boat. I never knew where that expression came from until rowing. <laughs> He's like, you don't know how to row really well, but I can teach rowing. He goes, I can't teach tenacity and grit. He goes, but I can teach rowing. So I rowed. And then last year I did the crash bees again. I came in second in my age group. I got that one woman. I got to take her down this year, but we'll see if I can do it or not. Yeah. Where does, where does that like, is it something you've always had or has it been a learned behavior from you what, know, insanity? Just jumping, well, well, just like <laughs> jumping into things and believing that you can do it. Like yeah. you've just run like your first mile and then like a month later you want to run a marathon. Like where does, have you always had that? Or is no. that, or is that from, Hey, I'm scared of this. I'm going it and you're just kind of leveling up and you sort of, uh, yeah, you sort of level up each time you do something yeah. you're you may not think you can accomplish. Yeah. So I told you in the very yeah. beginning, I didn't do the sportsing because I wasn't good at it naturally. So mm. I, I just was like, I'm not going to do it. I'm only totally, going to do the totally, things. Yeah. I'm going to sit in the corner of the room mm-hmm. and I'm going to watch everything. And as soon as I know I can master something, I'll jump in, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to do it until then. Right. Mm. So, um, I, I, that's always kind of been the way that I've been. And I realized and I used to think I don't take big chances because I just don't have confidence like those people. Those people have so much confidence. Mm. I could never have confidence like those people. And then one day I realized that that expression, if you can dream it, you can do it, is horseshit. Mm. Because I could dream I could be the Queen of England all day long, but like nobody's giving me tea and crumpets at 3 p.m. Right. Like, I mean, look around. There's like, I got, it's just you and me here. Like, <laughs> we got, there's the dog. That's all we got. Um, but Here's what I learned from doing the, the, the marathon. And I tell the story on stage a lot that if I woke up that first day and I walked into school and I saw Alan, I'm like, you look amazing. I'm going to go run a marathon. Never would have done it. I never would have mm. been able to do it. But because I said, I'm going to go to this class and I'm going to run a mile and then I'm going to do a 5k and then I'm going to mm-hmm. do a 10k. I think if you can do it, you can dream it. Like if you put one foot in front of the other, mm, I love that. Yeah. then the, Where does confidence come from? Confidence comes from competence. Once Mm. you start, once you start displaying to yourself that you have competence in something, you can have the like the confidence to dream these bigger dreams. Like think about when you're when you're hiking. Like if you're at the bottom of the mountain range and you look at the top and you go, "I'm going to climb to the top of the mountain," right? But what happens when you get to the top of the mountain and you see the view? What do you see? You see. 10 other mountain ranges that are higher mm-hmm. that you didn't see from the bottom. So if you were like, if I can dream it, I can do it. I can dream. I can get to the top of the mountain. Not only is it impossible, but you actually set your goals too low. Mm. So, you know, I never would have woken up in the morning and said, I could run a marathon. I might've been like, maybe I'll be able to do a half marathon one day. And that would have been my goal. And if I had just stopped there, what a shame that would have been. Mm. Right. I, I was at an event in London in December and it was the night before the big of the big event and this guy across the table decided he wanted to executive coach me which <laughs> is, is pretty hilarious <laughs> um he he asked me across the table what are your what are your goals for tomorrow and I said I don't I don't have any goals I I believe that if you do interesting things with interesting people interesting opportunities come about and we're a bunch of interesting people and then he says well let me give you some advice and 
there were other people at the table who knew me that were like, they sat back in their chair. They're like, oh, this, <laughs> this is going to be good. And he says, he says, if, if, if NASA had decided one day that all they wanted to do was put a rocket in space, they never would have got to the moon, but they set a goal to get to the moon and they spent a decade working on that goal to get them there. You need to have goals for tomorrow so that you don't undersell what you're capable of doing. And I looked at him and I said, with all due respect, that's exactly the opposite of the way that I've lived my life since I can remember. Mm. Because if all I said was, I want to go to the moon, we would never be trying to explore Mars. Mm. So I think this idea that we have to set these plans and we have to settle for what everyone else thinks is you know, right for us or our definition of success, or we have to you know, only set the goal from what we can see today, we set them too short. We set them mm. too small. And I think we undersell. I mean, what's the cost of not living in consonants? It's not figuring out your multitudes. There are so many multitudes inside of us. I never knew that I could get on stage and for 45 minutes entertain a crowd. I never wanted to do that. And now I love it. It is so entertaining. I spend my days, I, I, you know, I, I do a lot of blogging and I do a lot of speaking and I do a lot of media. And these are things that I never had any interest in. I didn't want to do. I didn't think I would get joy from. And by doing it, I'm learning so much more about myself and what I can do for myself and what, because of that, I can do for and with others. So, you know, my advice to people now is not like, you need to set goals to decide you're going to go to the moon, but like, just walk into a door, into a room. And if that room has more doors than the room you were just in, then you're going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. If it has fewer doors than the one you were just in, then maybe you're, maybe that's not the right way, unless you're really damn certain that that's the direction you want to be going in. But I think, you know, do interesting things with interesting people and interesting opportunities always arise. Mm, I love that. And, and would that be, so I'm, I'm listening, I want to, you know, become more aligned and fulfilled and have consonants, right? Is that step number one? Change sort of the environments that you're walking into on a daily basis? Like, what would you recommend? Oh, step number one is, What's screw, step number is one? screw the Joneses. Screw the Joneses. Screw the Joneses. Yeah. Okay, so you know, we all have these friends on social media that have yeah. like the perfect pictures and the perfect vacations totally. and they're like holding up the baby and the perfect sunset and they're like, they have like their hand with the heart, you know, mm. you know around, the, around the moon. Oh, they're the worst. They're the worst. <laughs> they're terrible. And you know, and, and they're telling us things like you have to find purpose and balance and happiness and follow your passion and all mm. this nonsense that are just, there are these like Instagram tropes that they trod in on the, the horsemen of the, the I, I call them the, I call them the, the four horsemen of the success apocalypse, right? Like they're, they're trotting it innocently enough and they just make us feel bad about them mm. our, ourselves. I mean, it's just, it's, it's awful. Jordan Harbinger just uh, read my book, you know, big podcaster, Jordan yeah, yeah. Harbinger. I'm um, doing a show in a couple weeks in LA and, and he, he gave me a blurb and the blurb was something like in a sea of self-help garbage, finally a book that doesn't make you feel bad about yourself after you read it <laughs> because these books are designed all of this stuff is designed to do that so you know we go on social media and we have all these friends that are showing us their new car or their fancy vacation or their perfect children on the first day of school with the perfectly matching outfits or you know their 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 bodies that are exactly in the way we want ours except they're standing in all these crazy ridiculous positions right. so perfect that it looks lighting. that way perfect lighting <laughs> right and and so you know i'm screw them right mm. like they like they are not they're, they're a they're probably not that happy and b 
it's, it's not, that's not your definition, right? So the totally. first thing I tell people is to say, what are those moments when you felt like you were really your very best version of yourself? When you were in that fundamental state, when you really felt like you were doing things where the what you did matched the who you were. Like, mm. who are you in those moments? And how do you be more of that person? How do you define, how do you, how do you create a life that allows you to live as that person more often than as the person you're trying to be for everyone else? Because I don't think that we're exhausted because we're busy. You know, we have all this martyrdom around busyness and, and, and then there's this whole cottage industry that the martyrdom around busyness is bad, right? So like, don't mm. be so busy. And, but I am a very busy person. And I'm 100% incontinent and I'm really never that exhausted. And people are like, how do you have so much energy? I don't even drink coffee. Like, this is just, this is me. Mm. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> imagine me on coffee. Um, so the, the exhaustion comes from the, the code shifting and the, the costume changing in between the busy. If the you have to be, changing. right, if I you have to that. be a different person at work than you are at home, yes. or if you're a different person with your spouse and with your kids and with your friends, that's really hard. Mm. That's exhausting all the time. We should strive to not have work-life balance, like work is here and life is there and God forbid they ever cross. We should have work-life alignment where you can mm. be the same person because we live in a world of social media where it's 24-7. We're out. We're all living out. We're all flying our freak flags all the time. So if you're a dentist who has a candy-making habit or if you're a, if you're a, a, a cardiac surgeon who likes to smoke cigars, right, like... Yeah. that's not going to work. Like we need to be able to live a life where we all are able to vibe on the same stuff 24 hours a day, as opposed to pretending and putting on, you know, these masks and these costumes. Cause that's really tiring. Mm. I love it. I, th I think that's a good place to close it. That was phenomenal. Right. Phenomenal. So before we sign off, um, where can people get the book? Where can people follow you? Yeah. So my name is Laura Gassner Otting. Uh, all my friends call me LGO. So I'm on all the socials at Hey LGO. Uh, so Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, LinkedIn, Hey LGO. The book, Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere fine books are sold. Go to your local independent bookstores. If they don't have it, they'll order it for you and ship it right to your house. And if you're listening to this and you're like, hmm, Consonant sounds really interesting. Calling, connection, contribution, control. I don't know where to start. I have the place for you. Go to limitlessassessment.com and there'll be a quiz there. And the quiz is a little bit intense. If you've been listening to me, that won't surprise you because I'm <laughs> a little bit intense, but it's your life. You should be a little bit intense about it too. Um, the quiz is about 65 questions and they're catalyzing tough questions. It's going to take you about 20 minutes to take. So, you know, pour yourself whatever it is you like to pour yourself and sit down and, um, and, and take it. But at the end of the quiz, you will get a beautiful radar chart that has two things. The first is one graph that shows how much of calling, connection, contribution, control you have in your life right now. And the second is a graph that shows how much you want to have. And where those overlap, you have consonants. And where they don't, you don't. And in those specific areas, you will get tips uh, and tricks and things that you can today, right now, to start building more of any of those things into your life so that you can have consonants and live a limitless life too. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. You are an absolute force. This has been a pleasure and, um, I'm excited for whatever you're, you're going to be doing next. And, uh, this book is incredible. Just the whole premise of it. And there's so many people not living in consonants and it's just, it's a beautiful message. And I know you're, you're positively impacting a lot of people. So thank you. Well, thank you. It's been fun. Mm -hmm.